Okay, we are live. So um, let's start with the sponsors. Nightly sponsor, Esther, Josh, and baby Jacob Kerner to the success of their family. Um, nightly sponsors, um, Ada Berkowitz, in memory of her father, Israel Ben Yehuda, Aryeh Zechronel on occasion of his upcoming yard site, which this year is on July 31st. In memory of Dvorah Fega Bat Shmuel Zechronel and Yebodu Lechaim Toiv Maruchim for the Rufuah Shalema of Menachem Mendel Ben Sarabatya and Yaakov Ben Penina. I'd like to add on personally for the Rufuah Shalema Ukraiva of Rezul Bas Miriam and Sterna Mezani Simcha Bas Tzivya. And with that, let's jump right into it. Okay, the title of today's class is Shattered Silence, Learning How to Engage. I'm going to read directly first the modern day issue that we're going to deal with from the perspective and depths, practical depths of Hasidus. So what is the modern day issue? At large, people don't succeed because of what they didn't do, and people haven't failed because of what they did do. Rather, people succeed because of what they were brave enough to do, while others have failed because of what they were too afraid to do. What we have just learned is, that in order to succeed, we need to engage. And in order to engage, we need to be brave. Well, how does one acquire braveness? Right? I mean, just, if you know the statistics, it's very interesting. You do the, stati the statistics of some of the most famous people that were successful, including a Walt Disney and stuff like that. You have no idea how many times they filed bankruptcy. This is the true, you look into it. When you hear, when you see the record of the all-time best hitter, you don't know that he also has the all-time missed hits. But as the saying goes, you failed for every hit you didn't take. You definitely didn't get it. So what it takes is the braveness to be able to do it. Well, let us take a look at what is the definition of being brave. Many people erroneously, I believe, make synonymous braveness with fearlessness. What I'm going to suggest is that they are not synonymous. Being brave does not mean to not have fears as much as it means to have fears and to move forward anyway. Unless the person is seriously, psychologically messed up, then he or she is going to have fears. It's just part of the human infrastructure. It's part of our emotion sets. One of them is fear. So we have fear. That to be brave doesn't mean to not have any fears. What it does mean is, even though you have fears and we have fears, we move forward. Thus, we now better understand what we are looking to acquire. We aren't looking to acquire fearlessness. Rather, we are looking to accept our fears and to move forward anyway. Okay? So what does it take to allow yourself to be afraid and to then move forward anyway despite the fear of doing so? This is the modern day issue of this lecture. So that you know, this lecture is based primarily on a Hasidic discourse of the Rebbe, blessed memory, delivered on this Shabbos in 1965, exploring why the 12 spies who were righteous leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel were afraid for the children of Israel to enter into the promised land and wanted instead for the children of Israel to remain in isolation in the Sinai desert. So just brief time out here and let's just quickly discuss the story and then we'll move forward. So the Jewish people 
have already received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. They already built the tabernacle and had its own inauguration. And now they're moving forward to enter into the land of Israel. As they reach next to the land of Israel, what's going to be the land of Israel, it was presently called the land of Canaan. And all of a sudden the Jewish people approach Moses and say, we have an idea. We would like to send spies. We would like to send people to check out this land that we're supposed to be entering into. And Moses asks God, and God says, I'm not commanding you to, but if you want to, go ahead. Moses sends 12 spies, one of each tribe. And obviously he picks out the finest of them. And yet, for some reason, 10 out of 12 come back with a negative story, and they're actually suggesting that the Jews rebel and not enter into the land of Israel. And thus, because it was 40 days that they toured the land in the espionage, so therefore God said for 40 years, a year for a day, you're going to wander into the, in the desert until this entire generation that rebelled against the land of Israel will die out and it will be your children who will enter into the land of Israel. That's the story. Now we need to get into the deeper depths. These people were no Joe Schmoes. Moses picked the finest and leaders, righteous people. What went wrong? Why did they suddenly turn against entering into the promised land? Okay, so now we're going to need to have an introduction. Today's introduction is probably three quarters of the class, but we need to understand it in order to be able to make sense of what was going on with the spies. Okay? There is a teaching from our sages. It is in the Kohelet Rabbah. It's a medrash that says that before God created this world, He created other worlds, and He destroyed them. Now, obviously, we cannot say that the sages are saying that it took God more than once to get it right. He built something, eh, not what I wanted. Let's destroy it and start over until we get this right. God doesn't go through that. So obviously God's plan and God's work is always perfect from the very get-go. If that be the case, we must then say that the world that God built and then destroyed is a necessary ingredient for the final product of our world. Thus the great Kabbalist, Rabbi Isaac Luria, known as the Arizal, who lived in Tzfat, some 350, no more, some 500 years ago, sorry about that. He was a friend of Rabbi Yosef Cairo, um, for those who are familiar with that name, from the Code of Jewish Law, correct? Shuch So this Arizal, this holy Arizal said like this, if you want to know what we're talking about when the sages in the Kahelet Rabbah say that God built worlds and destroyed them, we're talking about the world of Tohu. Let's understand what that means in the world of Tohu. So let's go to the second verse in the entire Bible. In the entire Torah, the second verse reads as follows. Now the earth was Tohu, we'll soon see what that means, empty and darkness was on the face of the deep. So the one word I used in Hebrew was the word Tohu. Now Tohu literally means chaos and astonishing. Now that means that before God began to create heaven and earth and all its details as we know it, there were these three ingredients, tohu, 
uvahu vechoshech. So we had chaos, emptiness, and darkness. We're going to focus on the first of the three, the world of Tohu. Now, this verse is not speaking about the primordial, because the Torah is starting from the get-go, from the very moment that creation began. So before creation, there existed nothing but God and His infinite light. So if we're saying that there was Tohu Uvohu V'choshech, there was chaos, emptiness, and darkness. By the way, what else is, goes upon there? The rest of the verse says, and the Spirit hovered upon the water. Water is not a primordial being. Water is a creation. Thus we now know that everything listed in this verse was not primordial, but rather God putting the ingredients that is necessary for his desired outcome in place. Thus we now understand that this tohu that was and then shattered is a necessary ingredient in God's ultimate plan. So there had to be a tohu and tohu had to be shattered and then those shattered pieces those shattered sparks fell into our universe which made this world exactly the way God wanted it to be. We're going to explain how that works. We're going to explain why God wanted there should be a tohu, tohu should be shattered, and now we can go on to make the final product. Okay? Now, when the Torah speaks of tohu in general, when Kabbalah and Hasidus speak of tohu, chaos, the world of chaos, it does it together with introducing the world of tikkun, the world of orderliness. By the way, for those of you who have been around in this class for a while, when we talk about tikkun, that would be what we refer to as the world of atzilut, that divine, divine world of unity and oneness. That is the world of orderliness. But over here, we're not calling it atzilut. We're talking in reference to toho, which is chaos. So we call this tikkun, which is orderliness. What are these two spiritual worlds of Tohu and Tikkun and why did Tohu shatter? So I just want to start by telling you that you should know one of the most amazing teachings about Tohu and Tikkun is about the biblical twins of Esau and Jacob, the twins that are the offsprings of Rebekah and Isaac. And over there it explains that Esau is the manifestation of the world of Tohu, chaos, and Jacob was the manifestation of the world of Tikkun. Now you'll understand something according to Hasidus, which is very bothersome. It says that Isaac favored Esau and Rebekah favored Tikkun. Why? So we just need to put in a little parentheses here and say that before it tells us that God, that Isaac liked, favored Esau, it tells us that Isaac was blind. What does that mean? Obviously Isaac was no fool. And just by hearing the way Esau talks, he should have understood that this isn't the good one. But rather what it means blind, means that Esau was, uh, Isaac was blind to the way that Tohu descended and manifests itself in this physical world. Thus, all that Isaac saw 
was the amazing infinite power of Tohu, which was the source of Esau. However, Rebecca, who wasn't blind and saw the way things played itself out in its descent in this physical world, she understood that it needs to be Jacob who's going to be dominant to control and guide the intense energy and passion of Tohu, i.e. Esau. Now you understand why there was a difference in which the patriarch and the matriarch favored. Okay? What's more important for us is to understand what is Tohu and why when it comes into this world can it manifest itself so, so difficultly. Why can it become the most powerful driving force of the dark side? Why? So let's talk about this, okay? What is Tohu? To understand what is Tohu, Tohu is the world of infinite lights. In other words, we talk about how the world was set up by God to have ten emanations, three intellects, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, and seven emotion emanations, which is the kindness, strength slash justice, um, compassion, and so forth and so on. Now, what happens in the world of Tohu is each one, each emanation has a light and a vessel, right? Now, what happens is in the world of Tohu, the light is infinite. And because it's so infinite, it has zero tolerance for any other emanation which is antithetical to its own. Let's talk about this for a moment. That means, for example, the emanation of wisdom is infinite. By definition, you'll see that I explained here briefly that the definition of wisdom is creative, brief, precise, and transcendent. It's that aha moment. It's the epiphany. That's what wisdom is. Thus, by very definition, wisdom cannot tolerate understanding. Why? Because what is the definition of the intellect of understanding? So, over here I explained it as managerial, elaborate, detailed, oriented, and digestible. The exact contrary to everything that wisdom is. Thus, wisdom is that creative person which gets so frustrated when you try to talk to them about details. Leave me alone with the details. That's why we have a manager. My job is to come with the out-of-the-box thinking. The manager's job is to put that into the box, make it sustainable, and make it profitable. So too, within each and every one of us, we have this aha creativity moment, which is wisdom, which when you're in that moment, it does not tolerate. Okay, how are we going to make this work? Now, when you talk about wisdom being infinitely wisdom, thus it has zero tolerance for understanding. Likewise, the emanation of understanding is infinitely understanding and thus has a total lack of tolerance for wisdom. We got a little problem here, Houston. Let's talk about something else. The same applies in reverse from understanding to wisdom. The same applies 
when it comes to the two, let's talk about the first two of the emotion emanations. Kindness and justice, if they're infinitely kindness and infinitely justice, then they do not tolerate each other. Kindness cannot tolerate having any consequences. Justice cannot tolerate looking away and being kind. Thus, in a world where everything is so infinite, you're doomed to have problems. Let's talk about Tikkun for a moment. Tikkun is quite the opposite. Tikkun is where each one of the lights is willing to go through a contraction and to be weakened so they can tolerate each other. <coughs> what does that mean? <coughs> For example, each one of the emanations of the world of orderliness is actually a compilation of each other so that they can be sustainable. Let's explain that for a moment. When you allow your child to have to deal with consequences, is that kindness or is that justice? No, it's not. Why isn't it just justice? Because the reason you're doing it is so that your child should develop and be educated. Woe to the child whose parent never lets him or her face consequences. That means that when you have a compilation, what happens here? When you have a compilation, you're going to have what we call justice of kindness and kindness of justice. That would never exist in the world of Tohu. Kindness will never let for consequences. Justice will never let for tolerance and looking away. And thus they're not sustainable. Neither infinite consequent, neither infinite justice nor infinite kindness is sustainable. Thus, what ends up happening here is that because the light is infinite in Tohu, thus the vessels react in kind. Which means what? Because the light wants want nothing more than to fully experience self and reveal self, thus the vessels are thin and fragile and transparent not to place any constriction or contraction or opaque filter on the light. So the world of Tohu is infinite lights and fragile vessels. Tohu, on the other hand, the vessels react again in kind to the light. And because the goal of the light is to become sustainable and digestible by the recipient, thus the vessels also are more thick, are opaque, so that the shine will be filtered, so that we can sustain and digest the light. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. So far, so good? It's actually both. It's actually what? It's actually both. It says, Thus the parent having a child face the consequences of the action or educate, develop, is an act of justice, which in the truth of this situation is an act of kindness. 
Which means what? Which means, which means justice is the top number of the fraction and the denominator is kindness. Thus it's justice of kindness. So it's both. Yes, but what I'm trying to say here is the common most dominant theme is kindness. You don't punish a child that's not yours. You punish a child that's yours because of your kindness and love to the child. And I don't like using the word punish. I'd rather use the word face consequences without the parent saving the child. Okay? Now, the fact that the lights of Tohu are so overbearingly infinite to the point that they cannot tolerate the other emanations is why we call the world of Tohu ego, yesh. It's egocentric. Everyone can just experience self without any room or tolerance for the other. What ended up happening because of this ego was that the infinite lights, and bear in mind that there's antithetical infinite lights shining, the vessels shattered. According to Kabbalah, there were 288 pieces, sparks, fragments that fell from the world of Tohu into our world. Now, I'm not going to explain why and how about the Egypt exile, but we are going to very clearly explain about us and what we do with these sparks. So just that we understand, we are taught, and Jacob in the Pasuk, I'm sorry, the Torah tells us that together with the Jewish people, there went up Erev Rav. Erev Rav simply means a multitude of different nations. In Kabbalah, we're very focused on the word Rav. Rav is the equivalent of 202, Resh Bet. And what we're saying here is that out of the 288 sparks that fell, they were able to subdue, refine, elevate, and restore 202 of those sparks. That's what they accomplished within the 210 years that they were in Egypt. How they accomplished that, not for tonight's class. What we want to focus on is that it's taken since then over 3,300 years to deal with the remaining 86 sparks. But now we understand, as we're soon going to see, we now understand why in order to have this world the way God wanted to have this world, he first created Tohu, allowed it to shatter, allowing for the fallen sparks to come into this world so that we're going to set up the scenario of this world, the freedom of choice, and the entire process according to his perfect plan. So there had to be a world of Tohu, it had to shatter, and part of this world is that those sparks should fall down here. Okay? Now, let's go further. Whew. We're on page three, and we're now going to discuss what exactly is this process. So I just want to share with you 
what the true process of the restoration is, I will quote you a teaching from Chassidus that says as follows. The goal is to have the lights of Tohu, infinite, passionate, all-powerful, in the vessels of Tikkun, finite, controlled, sustainable. We want to have infinite experiences in orderly, finite actions. Now, we're going to talk about this more. So, before we discuss how to accomplish this, we need to first understand the impact of Tohu and Tikkun upon our world's present reality. So, we have the world of Tohu, shattered, fell. We have the world of Tikkun, and all of this plays a role in our physical world, which is the desired place of God. Not the celestial spirituality, but the terrestrial physicality is what God's goal from that very first bet of Bereshit and in the beginning was all about. Okay? But for this world to be exactly as God wanted it to be so that we can fulfill our destiny and purpose, there would have to be the shattered Tohu and the Tikkun. Now let's see how that plays out in our world. So the verse in Deuteronomy, Parshas Ekev states, for man does not live by bread alone, but rather by whatever comes forth from the mouth of God. What exactly is the verse saying? So we're going to explain it according to Kabbalah and Hasidus. According to Kabbalah and Hasidus, this verse is going to explain to us an astonishing fact. Why is that? So let's talk about this. Bread comes from wheat, grain. Grain is a plant category. Where does the plant receive its sustenance to grow from? Earth. The earth is the inanimate. Who is the human? So you have four categories, right? You're familiar with the four categories? You have inanimate, plant, animal kingdom, human. How is it possible that the highest of all categories, the human being, which was created in the image and likeness of God, should receive its sustenance from the lower categories. In this world, the perverseness of this world is that the big eat up and nurture from the small. In spirituality, the small cannot nurture the big. How would that work? It has to be that the big nurtures the small. Thus the food chain is the exact opposite of true spirituality. Correct? Make sense? Kabbalah wants to know why. And Kabbalah tells us that this verse is the answer. Why? Because when we talk about Tikkun and Tohu, which is more powerful, we just said? More powerful is Tohu. It's infinite. It's passion. It's all-encompassing. It's all-powerful. Now, in this world, the sparks of high fell down to the low. Right? You have over here a wall. It falls. The one that's on the top, A, falls the furthest. B, with the biggest bang, gets embedded into the earth. The ones that were the lowest just fall. 
right? So it is spiritually that the higher the spirituality, the lower the descent, which means that the sparks of Tohu descended much lower than the orderliness, the divinity of the orderliness of Atzilut. Thus, we have in this world the impact and embodiment of both. The human being who has the emotions, his emotions are weakened by the power of intellect. The human being doesn't just go crazy because it has a cooling system. And that cooling system, the radiator, with the cooling liquid of intellect helps the human being not be chaotic in every time he or she experiences an emotion. The healthy human being is never in rage, justifiably angry but not in rage, justifiably happy but not silly and crazy. Thus the definition of the human being as explained by the Alter Rebbe and Tanya, quoted from the Raya Mehemna part of Zohar, says, and I quote it here, the brain rules over the heart by virtue of its innately created nature. The human being is the one that was created not to have hair with four feet, where the brain and the heart and everything is all equal. Rather, the human being represents the brain on top, the heart emotions under it, and then the action. Thus, by the very nature of how the brain functions, it is in control of the emotions. Thus, the human being is the category of tikkun. However, the lower categories of the animal kingdom so too with the plant and the inanimate are all the embodiment of tohu which is why an animal experiences emotions that are not cooled or calmed by the brain when in it when it's in a rage it's in a total rage there's nothing more dangerous than an animal that is in fear you know that when an animal was hit god forbid whatever it may be if the human, its own owner, tries to help it, it will bite its own owner. Because right now it's in a panic and there's no thinking. Because animals coming from Tohu, the emotions are more powerful than the brain. So too with that which comes from the plant and that which comes from the inanimate objects can be such a luring power of pleasure egocentric pleasure for the human being. Where does it get this so highly enticing, luring power of pleasure? Because it comes from the fallen sparks of Tohu. And that's what Tohu is all about. Okay? So now we understand that in this world, God purposely set it up that we have the fallen sparks of Tohu which allows for infinite passion, powerful, and there is the soul, this, which descends into the world, which that is the embodiment of atzilut, tikkun, orderliness. Now we understand why Rebecca was right 
in understanding that Jacob needs to be the rider, Esau needs to be the stallion, and the rider needs to be on top of the stallion. We'll talk about that in closing, in learning how to have braveness. Okay, so far so good, everyone with me? Now let's go to the next understanding, okay? What happens here is that because Tohu is so infinite and powerful, yet it fell into this world, we now understand two important factors about Tohu. A, it has the power to sustain the life force of the human being because it's more powerful and higher than the human being. However, we also understand that because the higher falls lower, it can become the chaotic, egocentric, powerful, drive, intensity of the dark side. Okay? And thus, by getting in touch and engaging with the Tohu, we can end up being confused and end up being succumbing to the egocentric passion of Tohu rather than using it for the theocentric service of man. And I want to just share with you. The great Baal Shem Tov once saw a person on eating. He's eating, dressed up in the Shabbos clothes, the, the first trimal and the Bekesha and the Gartel. And he tells his students, come, I want to show you what the naked eye can see. And he showed the, per he showed the students that was sitting there, literally an ox, literally a cow. A cow was sitting there. They saw a cow, not the uh, animated cow. The entire zlobiness and dirt of a cow sitting in Shabbos clothes eating. And upon their, you know, what, what just happened? The Baal Shem Tov said, it's very simple. When a person eats one of two, either he's going to elevate the godly spark, the toe spark of the animal into human category of serving God, becoming energy and focus on serving God, or the person is going to be so busy salivating over the taste and the pleasure it's receiving from the animal flesh that it's going to be descending into the animal domain. And thus what you just saw there is a person, instead of focusing on the pleasure of Shabbat through the three Shabbat meals, he was busy focusing on how yummy this meat is. Thus, instead of elevating the animal, the human descended. So now we understand the peril of the power of Tohu. Now we can understand one more thing. I spoke to you about the category of the human is orderliness tikkun. The categories of the animal kingdom, the plant and the inanimate is the fallen sparks of Tohu. I want to share with you that within the human being himself there's both. Because the animalistic soul of the body with all its egocentric feelings, with all its egocentric drives, the fear of the body is only one thing. Will I have to experience pain, shame, poverty? Right? The love of the human body is only about being validated, being loved, feeling comfortable. 
Those are all egocentric. Thus, the animalistic soul is the fallen sparks of Tohu. While the godly soul is the experience of Tikkun, orderliness. Okay? And now we understand that one thing. In general, we refer to the physical as Tohu and the spiritual as Tikkun. Thus, the godly soul is Tikkun. The animalistic soul is Tohu. Now, one more point and then we can get into the lecture. This is all the introduction, but this was the bulk of it. 613 commandments, the majority of them, and primarily all of those that deal with agriculture and deal with the works of the Holy Temple, are all only in the land of Israel. Thus the physical mitzvahs are primarily the product of the promised land. Thus, the four, well, at that point they didn't know 40 years, but their experience in the desert, being isolated rather than engaging, being isolated and protected by the clouds of glory, where 99% of their entire pursuit was spiritual Torah study and prayer. Now we understand, because we understand the danger that could happen when we deal and engage with the powerful fallen sparks of Toho in the physical, we now understand what the 12 spies, the 10 or the 12 spies were so afraid of. They said, let us remain within the isolation of the spirituality in the Sinai desert and not endanger ourselves in dealing with the physical mitzvot in the promised land. Okay? So far so good? Okay. And now we can start the lecture. Okay? It was very important to understand this. First of all, you now understand why every person feels schizophrenic. Part of you is orderly tikkun. Part of you is chaotic tohu. And thus we're constantly dealing with the war between the heart and the mind, the passion and the self-control, the focusing on theocentric versus the immediate gratitude, the immediate pleasure of the animalistic egocentric. It's now making sense, but we need to understand what the spies, A, what were they completely afraid of, and B, why were they wrong? They seem to be right. Okay? Okay, so let's go through a list of the mystical concepts that we're going to talk about quickly, and then we'll be able to wrap it up. Number one, the cancelled land. Number two, I quote to you what the 10 of the 12 spies said. It is a land that consumes its inhabitants. Number three, what does it mean to safely engage? Number four, of the two spies that remained loyal, Caleb stood up and the verse says and Kaleb silenced the people the last concept we're going to talk about is the difference between the general conquest and the individual conquest and now let the amazement of Hasidus begin the cancelled land the words that describes the concern of the 12 spies is explained in the verse in this week's Torah portion 
The land we pass through to explore is a land that consumes its inhabitants. What precisely was their concern here? What does it mean consumes the inhabitants? So, Rab Shlomo Yitzchaki, Rashi, famous commentator, French commentator of the 11th century, he explains the words literally, and obviously this comes from the Talmud, and he says that people were dying and being buried. Buried means consumed by the land, physically. They were being placed in the land. <clears throat> now, let's see what he says. It says like this, wherever we passed, I'm quoting to you Rashi, wherever we passed, we found them burying dead. Okay, why? The Holy One, blessed is He, intended this for good. To keep them occupied, the residents, with their mourning, so that they should not notice them, despise. Right? That's what he had in mind. And what did this spies say? Oh, this is a horrible land. Everyone's dying here, right, left and center. There's something wrong with the land here. That is Rashi's physical, simple interpretation to the five-year-old Cheder Yingala and Medela that are learning Chumash. Okay? Now let's see what's going on here. Before we can understand the deeper mystical meanings to behind what does it mean to be consumed, the land consumes its inhabitants, we're going to need to understand a different quote from Zohar. The quote from Zohar is but two words. And it's called Ara Isbatlis. Now just that you know, when we talk about Zohar and so to Talmud, we are not talking holy tongue. What language are we talking? Aramaic. So just that you know, Ara Isbatlis really means Aretz Sheyibatel. What it means is a land, the land became canceled as in nullified. What does this mean? What does the Zohar mean? So you know that in the Zohar, everything is metaphorical. Land represents something spiritual. Doesn't mean what we think it means. Sun and moon. Moon represents the same thing actually like land does. And then the sun represents the other. What's going on here? So there are two interpretations to what the Zohar means. The first interpretation is that the land is a metaphor for the 10th and last emanation, Malchut, kingship. That's famous in the Zohar. That Malchut, kingship, is called Aretz, also Yam, land, ocean, and there's reasons why, but not for tonight. For tonight, let's stay focused. And the Zohar is referring to what happened to an emanation of kingship of Tohu when the vessels shattered. We explained that the infinite chaotic world of, of Tohu shattered, right? The ten emanations shattered. So we're saying that, no, it wasn't really the ten. By the way, just that you should know, the three intellects didn't shatter. The six of the seven emotions shattered. The seventh one, kingship, didn't shatter. It just canceled its function. That was the outcome of that. Why? How does this make sense? So just to understand, what do we explain earlier? We explained that the reason why the, the emotions of Tohu shattered was because of the egocentric I am only what I am and I have zero tolerance for anything that is not what I am. Kindness is infinitely kindness and there's no room for justice. Justice is infinitely justice and there's no room for kindness. And the same thing, by the way, compassion. Infinite compassion is dangerous. Infinite compassion is what allows us to suddenly have compassion on terrorists 
that are coming to kill us. That is inappropriate compassion. Thus, we need to understand that what drove this destruction of the world of Tohu was his infinite egocentric identity of I and infinitely I. To understand this, we need to understand what's different about the tenth emanation. The tenth emanation has on one side ego. Kingship, by definition, is exalted. The king is exalted. All the laws that govern how a king behaves and how we treat a, go, uh, a king and the king's power over his subjects is all about the king being exalted. Okay? That's the ego side of kingship. However, here's an interesting flip. The feminine mystique is kingship. Kingship represents the moon. What is the moon all about? The moon is all about not having any light of its own but being the reflection of the sun into the darkness of the night. The moon on its own does not have any light. The reason it gives us light and darkness is because of the positions where the sun shines upon the moon and the moon shines down. And thus, when the moon is not aligned to receive the light of the sun, the moon gets smaller and smaller. Right? Mystically speaking, the tenth emanation, its job is to receive the light of all the nine previous emanations and to shine it into the dark night, which metaphorically here means the world beneath it. So you have this world with the ten emanations, three intellects, six emotions, the male emotions, and then the power of kingship, the feminine mystique is to be able to absorb, reproduce and give birth to the lower world to receive some form of the divine light. Okay? So that means that kingship is actually not just ego, it's also able to put itself aside to be nothing more than a mere reflection. By the way, the Talmud tells us that Malchusa the Ara Me'ain Malchusa Dirakia. That royalty on earth is but a reflection of royalty in heaven. Why? So Kabbalah and Hasidus explain the entire notion of a human being being a king is not normal. How can a finite, fragile creature? with all the faults that a human being has, become a king of the, over other subjects. Thus we're taught that the only reason there is such a concept of a king is because it is a reflection. God gives the gift of a reflection of royalty in heaven. Thus, if you look in Judaism, in Parshish Kitzetze, what are all the laws? Um, I got it one second, maybe not. What are all the laws that covers a Jewish king? Not to have too many wives, not to have too much money, not to have too many horses. What is it all about? It's all about stay humble. Because if you're not humble, then you can't reflect the royalties of heaven. If the royalties on earth is not reflecting the royalties of heaven, we are in trouble. Because no human being deserves to have that power of his own egocentric right 
to be king over any other human being. Thus, once again, even though by definition a king is exalted, the exalted one of the nation, but in true adepts, the only way that can ever go right is when it has humility to be nothing more than a reflection of the divine power of royalty. Thus, because kingship has within it humility too, therefore even the, the kingship of the world of chaos and tense, all-powerful world of Toho that shattered, kingship didn't shatter. It only canceled its function. That's all that happened. That is the first definition, and we're soon going to understand what that means to us. Let's talk about the second interpretation. In the second interpretation, land refers to what's called Knesset Yisrael, which basically means the soul, the godly soul of the Jewish people. Now, what does it mean that the soul was canceled? How does that mean? Over here, it means the exact opposite. Over here, it means that at the time of prayer, when one becomes so close to God, one feels the intensity of how great and how kind and how loving and compassionate God is. Thus, it only has one intense yearning to become encompassed within the bosom of God and to become completely cleaving to God. It's where the soul says, I want out of this egocentric world. I want nothing more than to be a spark returning into its mother flame. Thus, we have two definitions of what the Zohar means when it says, the land that is canceled. One is the negative effect of the powerful, intense chaos of Tohu, the other is simply the beautiful reflection of the godly soul when it gets too close to God in that moment of intensity of prayer where it's all about hero Israel, God is our God, God is one and you shall love God your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might that it simply cancels and wants to go back. Okay, two definitions. Now let's talk about what the spies were concerned because the same two definitions apply to what the spies were afraid of when they said that this land consumes its inhabitants. Okay, let's go. Okay. So let me, let's do this quickly now that we understand the two definitions. Number one, specifically by doing, we're on page six. Specifically by doing physical mitzvot, we are bringing about the revelation of the infinite light, Tohu. Remember what we said, right? Physical in this universe, in this world as we know it, represents the power of Tohu, which is why the power of pleasure, the power of passion, the power of insanity lies within the physical, not within the spiritual. Because that's where the intense, infinite sparks of passion and chaos of Tohu fell. Thus, when we do physical mitzvot, what are we doing now? We're bringing about the revelation of the infinite light. We're doing physical mitzvot. As long as we remain only spiritual, isolated in the desert of Torah study, without engaging in the world, we're only dealing with the weaker light, the contracted light, the concealed light of orderliness. 
Our mind will never allow our passion and emotions to get so insanely in love with God. Because a human being doesn't function that way. Human being and insanely is, should be a contradiction. However, when we get in touch with physical mitzvot, now we're coming in contact with the infinite light of the tohu, the spark within the physical. And thus, what were the 12 spies afraid of? They were afraid of if once you introduce the Jewish people that received the Torah in the desert and are now going into the land of Israel. You remember what happened, by the way, when the Jewish people heard the voice of God? By the Ten Commandments. You remember? All of a sudden they came running to Moses. Stop, stop, stop. You talk to us. We're dying. Why? Because when the soul within the constraints of a body gets so close to the mother flame, it literally, the fire, the flame jumps off the wick into the... Thus the, thus the 10 or the 12 spies were saying, whoa, 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 whoa. We're dealing with something beyond our capacity. When we're learning Torah, mind over matter, the human mind is engaging. It's orderly. It's all methodological. It makes sense. But if we're going to do the physical mitzvah, we're now going to get in touch with the intense, infinite chaos of the toe sparks, we're going to experience Mount Sinai over and over again. We're all going to succumb and we're going to die. We're going to be so insanely in love that we will be non-functioning human beings. Imagine for a moment experiencing Yom Kippur all year long. Imagine that there's nothing. We don't want to eat. We don't want nothing. We, we just want just God. Just God. I just want to get one more look at God. I want to have one more of that amazing Ne'ilah moment where finally my body succumbed to all the heaviness of the fasting and the standing and the this and the that. I'm done with my ego. I, I, you, you crushed me. Now all I want is just, just open that ark and let me experience it. There's that moment when we say one time, Hero Israel, we say three times, blessed be the name. There's that moment where you really forget about everything. All I want is you, God. Imagine having that all the time. The spies were afraid of that. Let's talk about the other fear. The other fear is the exact opposite. The spark of toe that fell into the physical is so insane and it's so all-powerful. It's in, in its egocentric potential of pleasure that we may succumb. And all of a sudden, we forget what we started fighting for. Oh yeah, we all wanted to fight for civil rights and equal rights and everything. But the minute we get into power, all of a sudden we're a little different. The minute money starts flowing in, it doesn't end up where it's supposed to. Pockets all of a sudden start getting filled. What happened? You were fighting and all for the rights and the equal rights and you were there and you were with them. What happened? What happened is that a taste of tohu is very dangerous. A taste of power, fame, success, wealth. And all of a sudden we forgot why we started getting involved altogether. Thus, this 12, the 10 or the 12 spies said, whoa, 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 this is not good for us. 
Let's stay in the desert. Let's stay isolated. Let's stay to ourselves, spiritual. Let's not get involved with this whole politics and chaos and then making money and this. It's beautiful here. It's beautiful. The mana is falling. We all equally have what we need. We're living in beautiful tents. It's all wonderful. We wake up in the morning and we dive in, then we learn, then we dive in, then we learn. It's a beautiful life. You really want to go inside and start dividing the land? And you get the agriculture, and you get the oil, and you get the this, and all of a sudden we're, we're killing each other. Those were the two fears. One was all about getting too close to the infinite light, and one was about, and if we don't find the infinite light within the physical mitzvah, and all we're going to find is the egocentric chaos of the physicality, we're going to succumb to the seven deadly sins. Okay? Now here's the problem. What's the problem? The problem is they were right. <laughs> I mean, how many more examples do we have to go on to see how all these people that started so wonderful and altruistic and somehow all of a sudden forgot who they were and what they were doing? Thus we have to safely engage. What's to safely engage? To understand how to safely engage, we have to look at what Caleb the one of the two loyal spies answered them. He spoke up and it's divided in two parts. Part number one was what? Part number one was Kalev silenced the people to Moses. The second part was he then said, we can surely go up and take possession of it for we can indeed overcome it. In these two parts of that one verse that Kalev responded, we have the answer of how to safely engage. Let's talk about this. The general approach of the ten spies was, and I quote you the verse, we are unable to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. Now, listen to what the sages say in the Talmud Attractic Sota. When they said, for they are stronger than we, what do you mean we? Since when did the Jewish people in the desert fight their own war? It was God. The Jews didn't make the ten plagues. The Jews didn't split the sea. What were they thinking? All of a sudden now they're going to fight their own war? So they, the sages say that what they really said was that they're stronger than God. And they quote the following quote. The owner of the house cannot remove the vessels from the household. What is going on here? Really? These righteous ten leaders thought that the Canaanites were stronger than God? I mean, what, what was going on here? Let's go back to Kabbalah. What it means is, he's saying, we are souls of Tikkun. They are the sparks of Tohu. The sparks of Tohu is far too powerful for the sparks of Tikkun to be able to conquer them, subdue them, refine them, elevate them, and restore them. Thus he's saying, these ten spies are saying, we can't do this. We walk in the power of Tikkun. They, the physical, has the power of Tohu. And Tikkun is weak. And Tohu is strong. And thus we will not successfully take out the sparks, the vessels of the household, subdue them, refine them, and restore them, and elevate them. That's what he's saying here. Now we understand what is going on here. What's going on here is that we need to hear an answer to what they're saying. They're right. We all admit 
that the power of chaos and sanity is stronger than the power of orderliness. By definition, orderly is orderly because it's not insane. When the sane try to fight with the insane, we got a trouble. So what is the answer? Now let's go back to what Kolev said to them. The answer is to safely engage in physical mitzvot. We would have to first subdue and refine the physical realm and the individual physical object. Now let's go back to what Kolev says. Step number one, Kolev silenced the people to Moses. What does it mean he silenced the people to Moses? He silenced the people so they would listen to what he's gonna say. What does it mean he silenced the people to Moses? There's a simple definition, but let me give you the spiritual, the mystical definition. Moshe Rabbeinu represents Chachma. When the Jews complained about Moses, what did he say? Venachnu moh. We are but what? We're nothing. Aaron and I are nothing. We have zero powers. We are just conduits to God's power. Now we understand. When Moses, when, when, when Kalev said that we're going, he silenced the people to Moses, he was telling them, the first thing you need to know with how to deal with chaos and intensity and egocentric is the gift of silence. What is the power? What is the power of the chaos? The chaos is, you ever go to a comedian and everyone's laughing and laughing. Did you ever make the mistake of trying to think, what exactly did that joke mean? That's the worst thing you can do to a comedian. Because the comedian is living off the kinetic energy, so to speak, of one laugh rumbles into another laugh and before long they don't even hear what he's saying. He says something, they're all laughing. The way to combat that insanity is, whoa, 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 shh, calm down. Don't laugh so hysterically. Catch yourself. Think for a moment. So the first general conquest of the chaotic emotions is silence. It's not to start arguing. You can't argue with a rumbling tornado of laughter and emotions. When you're feeling insane and passionate, no one can talk to you and make sense. The first thing you can do is, shh, shh, get quiet, get quiet. That's the first thing Kalev did. Connect to Moses, koach ma. Become a little bit silenced. What's the next step? The next step, once you have that general conquest, oh, okay, now you're silenced. Now let's deal with it. What does it mean to deal with it? It means that every single engagement you have will be refined. Let's talk about this. <coughs> Eating, it's a biggie. Eating is a place where many of us go insane. Obesity in America is whoop-de-doo. <laughs> Uh, yes, I'm an example. <laughs> so what happens here? The power of eating is when you're able to, whoa, 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 slow down. Let's start looking at how many carbs, how many proteins, and everyone will tell you every diet is doomed to fail. The only way you're not doomed to fail if it becomes a way of life rather than a white-knuckling a diet. Now, how does that work? I've had success for X amount of time, up a couple, actually a year and something, but my diabetes. 
You just start looking at food not as food. You start looking at food as energy. And if I'm looking at food as energy, I don't want to see whether it's chocolate chip or not. I want to see how many proteins, how many carbs, how many of the carbs is dietary fiber, how many is added sugars. All of a sudden you look at a food differently. It's not, oh wow, did you see the package and the cream and the this and the that. PR, advertisement is counting on you not being logical. Just get blown away by, oh my God, death by chocolate. <laughs> what a way to go. But then well, one, one second, what is it? Why do I eat? And then you start thinking about a blessing before you eat. Who is the creator of this? And then you start thinking about a blessing after you eat. Gratitude to God for giving me what I have. It wasn't like, oh, I'm so smart, I'm so brilliant, I earned money and I bought. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Other people are just as smart, working just as hard, and they're not paying their bills. There's got to be a blessing here involved. And then to make sure that the food you are eating is kosher, according to God's will. By the time you finish all this processing, food is now more a danger of overindulgence. It has a whole new meaning to it. It's all part of an amazing human experience rather than an animalistic salivating. Thus we talk about the second process is that whatever we are going to engage with, let's not forget who we are. Let's not be the human who turns into a cow. Let us be the human who takes parts of the cow and turns it into humans by absorbing it and digesting it in the proper fashion, using the energy for the proper thing, inviting people to your meals. It's no more about the egocentric I, I, I. Let's go from I to we. Let's go from ego to theocentric. By the way, the same thing is with the human being, with our own tohu, our animalistic soul. The first thing to teach ourselves is the power of silence. Remember what Aaron did when his two sons died? It was his greatest day, inauguration of becoming the high priest. Two of four sons died. What does it say? Vayidom Aaron. Aaron stayed silent. Sometimes when we're too excited, it's best not to talk. I don't know if you're familiar with a person called Rabbi Manus Friedman, an amazing speaker. When his first child was getting married, they asked, oh, man, what are you going to say? He says, right now I'm emotionally overwhelmed. I won't be talking. That's a mensch. Rather than, ah, ah, what, what, what did you just say? And I'll take it back with social media. Forget that. Sometimes it's best, you know what? I'm too emotionally overwhelmed. I shouldn't be talking right now. Whether it be anger, fear, um, sha. The second thing is to deal with every one of your emotions individually. My emotions are egocentric. I love what makes me feel good, what makes me feel high, and I hate what causes me pain and shame and, and suffering. That's egocentric. Let's work through this now. Let's talk about theocentric, not egocentric. Let's simply start focusing in that I am not the center of the universe around which everything and everyone evolves. That's the work that makes safe engagements. If we cannot silence ourselves when we're overwhelmed emotionally, and we cannot deal with every one of our emotions quietly, questioning, focusing, then engaging in the physical powers 
are very dangerous. However, if we could, then it's a beautiful experience. Then, like I mentioned before, where the rider upon the Arabian stallion, which will experience unprecedented passion, power, and just goodness. Okay. And now that that's done, let's do it in closing. We have to get back to our opening concept. What was our opening concept? The opening modern day issue was, and I quote, what does it take to allow yourself to be afraid and then to move forward anyway despite the fear of doing so? Now that we have all this understanding, this mystical understanding of the power of Tohu and how the power of Tohu really is scary and the safe way to engage, let's talk about what the answer to our issue is. Let me begin by sharing an astonishing t statistics. This is an unbelievable statistic. More people are afraid of success than they are of failure. Can I say that again? More people are afraid of success than they are afraid of failure. Yes, we have a fear of the shame of failure. However, there is even a greater fear of success. The fear may be that we don't deserve it, we'll lose it, or even more so that we will be swallowed up by it and change who we are. My friends, just look at how many Hollywood movies are based around this theme of people becoming completely consumed by the success, wealth, fame, and power, totally losing who they were and all that they had. We all know those movies over and over again. That's a real fear. Now, conventional wisdom tells us that to be brave and to overcome our fears, we need to build up some cockiness and wobble in shoes that don't fit us, so to speak, imposing ourselves on others and on the situation, bluffing our way through it until we become it. This is the road of self-reliance. Self-reliance works up to a point and most often ends up failing us and miserably so. Especially when we are dealing with something so much more powerful than us, infinitely more powerful than us, as the sparks of toe have fallen into the dark side. I'm speaking very plain and simple about fame, wealth, power. This is why the Esau, the son of the holy Isaac and grandson of the holy Abraham, what kind of better environment could you have been brought up in? Isaac is your father, Abraham is your grandfather, Sarah is your grandmother, Rebecca is your mother, and yet ended up becoming a murderer, a rapist, and a thief, as all he wanted was more and more of the intensity that the dark side with his fallen sparks of tow offered him. Thus, Kaleb offers us a counterintuitive solution. <laughs> what is the counterintuitive solution of how to be brave? Not cocky, not huffing and puffing, but rather humility. The road to braveness, freeing our fears and feeling our fears and moving forward regardless is the road of humility-based faith in God. That will never fail us. And may the force be with you. Thank you.